super scary because I don't know where I am. I don't know if I'm dead. I don't know if I'm alive. I don't know if I'm in hell <laughs> in a different galaxy. I have no idea. I can't uh, explain what hap what's happening. Ooh, I gotta go. I've been working, told them please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bro. Just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog. Swear I paid on my fees. I was starving for this day. Now my fan, they can't eat. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As nurses, we know your mental health matters. It's important to prioritize yourself. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. Just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences, then BetterHelp will match you with the right therapist. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash cup of nurses. As a nursing student or nurse, you know how important it is to have the right resources to help you succeed. That's why we invite you to check out our nursing resource page, where you can find freebies like our cheat sheets, travel checklists, favorite Amazon products, and more. In addition, you can purchase our merch and NCLEX guide. Don't miss out on these valuable tools to help you excel in your nursing career. Visit cupofnurses.com today. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome to the Cup of Nurses show here with your hosts, Peter and Matt, two nurses on a mission to change this world in one conversation at a time. Thank you for tuning in. If you find value in the show, please share and review the show. It would mean absolutely everything to us. Cupofnurses.com for the latest updates, merch releases, and anything else about us. For our lifestyle podcast, you can check out wearefullinewarriors.com. In this episode, we would like to introduce you to Emily Suzanne Roth. Suzanne is a delirium and coma survivor. After an initial bacterial infection, Suzanne had to be placed into an induced coma that lasted 16 days. We talk about her time in the ICU and her experience of being in a coma and suffering from delirium. In this episode, we flip the script and learn firsthand about a patient's experience. Hey, Suzanne, welcome to the show. Can you give us a brief background about yourself and why you are here today? Hello. Um, yeah, so I'm um, 51 years old. I'm German. Uh, originally, I left Germany when I was 25 and I worked in, started working tourism and traveled a lot of countries until eventually I um, came to Miami, to the United States about 10 years ago where I settled down with my family, my husband and my two kids, and um, which I call my home now after more than 10 years. And um, to, about nearly two, two years ago in July 2021, I, um, I was admitted to hospital due to a infection. Um, and I ended up in a two weeks coma due to that. And I was in hospital for a month and um, in an induced coma for two weeks. And um, so I would like to tell about my story. <laughs> yeah. So Suzanne, so what was happening that, that caused you to, to go into hospital to uh, kind of get into that situation of where you had to be intubated and then put on sedatives? And like you said, you, you ended up being in, in, a, in a coma for about two weeks. Right. So I, you know, it was a... I woke up one morning, I had a, a pain in my throat and ear on my left side, but, you know, it, more, it felt more like a, a throat infection. Um, so I had just gone through a cold. So I was like thinking it was like a super infection on top of it. I went to the doctor that day and they did a strep test and it came back negative. So they sent me back home and said it was a, a viral infection. So the next day I was deteriorating. I was getting very weak, nauseous. I started throwing up. And so I went back to um, uh, urgent care that evening. They did the same thing, COVID, strep, nothing. Everything came back negative. So again, they gave me something for the nausea. They sent me back home. And that night um, my throat started to, to swell. So it started to make like cellulitis. 
Um, and then the next morning, obviously, I was getting scared about what was happening. And uh, so my husband and I used to go to um, emergency to do a scan. And um, um, that's so I was a, I was in an emergency um, for the whole day. They did a scan. They realized it was an infection going on. I had done several abscesses. And um, I was, it, it was very bad luck for me because it was the 4th of July weekend and I was admitted on a Friday. So basically nothing really happened until following Tuesday because 4th of July was on a Sunday. So as well, Monday was like a holiday. And um, so I was placed on and off on antibiotics and steroids to kind of control the infection, but nothing really happened. And um, so once the the doctor, the ENT came and, and saw me and they decided to do another scan and then the, they decided to do the first surgery, which was basically draining um, the area to relieve the pressure. And uh, so that was the first surgery, but then um, the next day it started to swell again and um, we did another scan and then they just, they decided to, to take me back and do another surgery to open more drains. So they had placed drains in my, in my neck and throat. And uh, so the second surgery was actually when they decided to keep me and put me in a coma. Mm. And, pr and prior to that experience, how did you feel that it was 4th of July weekend that maybe, do you feel like treatment was delayed? Do you feel like we just were doing symptom management in the hospital before we ended up going the surgery route? Like how was your experience leading up to the conscious coma? Totally. I mean, it, it was, um, it was very, um, you know, I was desperate because it, it was hard to get a doctor um, to see me. Obviously there were doctors on shift. I wasn't in the ICU. I was in a normal hotel, um, sorry, <laughs> hospital room. And, and so, you know, I, I was like swelling and, and the antibiotics, antibiotics didn't really kick in. And we ended up even asking for the hospital administration to see us because we were so desperate about not being seen and not getting a result or getting, getting anywhere. So it was time we lost, I think. It, you know, if, if someone had reacted earlier, I'm sure that... Um, Maybe even the coma could have been avoided. I'm not an expert. I, I can't tell because in the end, the infection was in the teeth, so they had to had to do the surgery. But again, it, it took nearly 10 days until they realized or until they agreed to start pulling out the teeth. And it wasn't until then that the infection started to go down, um, you know, the leukocytes and all the, the, the values. So... Um, I do believe that we, we did lose um, days before something happened. Yeah. And then when you were under sedation and, and in, in, the, in the coma, what did you experience? How, how did it feel like? Because so I was never in a, in a coma or anything like that, but I did have surgery. And I don't remember anything from that surgery, but I do remember coming out of surgery. And I literally thought right. that I like died twice. So I was wondering, because right. you, were, you, were you were sedated for... For two weeks. So, what had, what did you experience in, in those two weeks? Were you aware of anything that was going on in, in in the room? Were you aware of what was being done to you? Because sometimes when it comes to, to sedation, it's like you kind of know reality, but you kind of don't. It's usually like a like like a mix of it. Some things are, are real, but then it's like I, still fiction going on. So, can you uh, go in a little bit of detail of what, what you experienced, what you saw, or what you felt? Correct. Yeah. I mean, and and that's actually why I decided to write a book about my experience because it was really like a story. I mean, it was, um, so I, as you say, I was going like in and out of kind of a conscious, but I was never really conscious. I was never really, I was never aware what was going on. I wasn't aware I was intubated. I wasn't aware I was in a coma. So th the story starts that I wake up in a bed, which I don't know where I am obviously. And then I, you know, series of things happen and then it's it's like different scen sceneries right it's like a, like a story so you have one 
day happening this and the next day something else happens. So, you know, I go along and, and I have this, um, obviously it's super scary because I don't know where I am. I don't know if I'm dead. I don't know if I'm alive. I don't know if I'm in hell <laughs> in a different galaxy. I have no idea. I can't uh, explain what hap what's happening. And, um, you know, so I, I, I see things, I see my husband, I can't tell if I really saw him or if it's also part of my delirium. I see nurses. Um, so yeah, a couple of things happened during that time. But it's, and it's funny, because, as you say, you, there, there's reality mixed with the delirium. And for example, I, the whole thing goes around about that I think uh, it's a conspiracy and they sold my body and they want to transform me into a fish, but it's like a, you know, like a new species that, that they're working on. So I think I'm in a lab. Okay. So I have this fishy smell everywhere and then I see the fish. And I mean, that's where the red and purple fish title comes. And then I have this, um, I feel like they are feeding me seaweed and, and all that. And then once I wake up, I realize that it's the, the feeding tube that, and you guys know that better than me, that apparently has like a fishy, like sushi smell or something. So that's like what makes my brain think what is happening. Or I hear cracking in the wall and it looks like glass is breaking off and, and fish and seaweed are coming out of it. Once I'm awake, I realize that this cracking is from the, you know, the tower you have next to your bed in, a, in an ICU room. So something happens that every now and again, it makes like a cracking sound, at least that what happened in my room. So I, my brain translated that into, you know, glass cracking off the wall. And so there are certain things that then later I realize the connection, but, um, Everything else is, is like, I mean, I would call it fantasy now because it's nothing, nothing real. So something we I do, experience. yeah, something we do in the ICU is we do a conscious sedation. So we see what is the level of consciousness that the patient is experiencing. So this is usually a night shift person. We wake them up, we turn off the sedation and we see if they're able to follow our commands, squeeze, give us a thumbs up to see what is their mental status. And I know during right. this time you're you're in a conscious coma for quite some time. Did they do a sedation vacation? Is what we call it, where you're able to open your eyes and understand that you're in a hospital bed or in a hospital room, and then close your eyes again? Or was there family members around you when this was happening? Do you recall any of those events? So the only event I I recall is, um, and I can't say if it's a sedation location or if it's actually that they're trying to to get me out of the coma. Um, I just remember that I'm sitting up. My husband is next to me. Everybody's kind of trying to calm me down. I'm super agitated, like shaking. And, um, I, you know, there are nurses and doctors around me. And then someone says, okay, no, we can't do it now. We have to wait another two or three days. And that's when I'm gone again. But I keep this thought in my mind. And I'm like, okay, so then I think, okay, two or three days have passed. What's happening? Nothing is happening. So, um, but that's the only time that I remember. I can't remember anyone like trying to, you know, do exercise with me or, or really talking to me in that sense. And, and go ahead. No, I was I was saying, and and I read all my medical records. So mm. I can't I can't find anything about that in mm. there. Yeah, it seems seems like yeah, you're going through some delirium because what you're saying is when they try to do the like the weaning trial or where they try to mm. decrease the sedation and see if you can breathe on your own and see if they can pull that tube. Is we do like little trials. We don't just say hey, let's do it. We do like these little trials, and if you're able to wake up and you kind of follow commands that man was saying, then we kind of pull the tube. So it seems like you had a little bit of delirium going on because whatever you were dreaming of when you were sedated, it's almost like that's right. what caused agitation when it decreased it because you still thought exactly. you were in that lab. You still thought you were in this tank or whatever, this experiment. That's probably what brought on your your, uh, your agitation where they had to kind of then resedate you. So while you're going through this dream state, are you feeling any kind of emotions? Are you like super scared? 
besides like, you know, seeing all this stuff and, and trying to figure out this is real, this is not real. Are you like scared or sad, nervous? What, what are your feelings? Or do you have even any feelings? Do you, like, do you feel anything during this dream state? No, I do. I do. I mean, I'm super scared. I'm panicking because I, my, my main thought is that, oh my God, I'm not going to see my kids again. So I'm, you know, and, and really things happen in my mind that um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, okay, what is going to happen with me? Where am I going? How, how do they transform me? Will I be like a little fish? Will I be a big fish? Will I be an edible fish? Um, you know, what, what is happening? But my, my, the scariest part is really that I don't know where I am and that I don't know if I will ever see my family again. So I'm trying to, you know, get in touch with my parents which are, who are deceased. I'm trying to get in touch with my sister who is a spiritual healer and I, I can't. I'm trying to find the light to see if I'm actually really dead already and, and you know, go over because it's, I'm, I have this feeling I'm in this limbo between alive and dead, which kind of is true when you're in a coma, but I'm totally trapped, obviously, because I can't talk, I can't walk, I can't even make signs. And um, it's, I mean, it's, it's a terrible desperation because you have no idea what's happening. You don't know where you're going. And I, there comes a point that I, I'd rather be dead really. And then, so I'm trying to, and again, that's delirium, but apparently I was told later that I actually tried to pull the tube. So in my delirium, I'm trying to pull the tube because I, I can't, you know, I, I, I'm a person I have, I like to have control over my life and being in this trap, I was freaking out and I was like, okay, I need to end this because nothing is happening. And, and probably the, it, it's going to be even worse than, being dead so that was my my thinking yeah i'm really glad you shared this because as nurses physicians or any healthcare professional we don't really know what's going through the mind of someone that's sedated we just know that hey we have inner restraints and we try to wake you up you get agitated and like that's like all we know is they get agitated okay but we never really know why that happens or we never really cons consider what's going on in, in the mind of a sedated person because right no one just when you're sleeping, you don't just wake up agitated, right? You like you, you can't. It's almost hard for you to rationalize how can this person that we're taking off sedation be agitated? Like like what what's go what's going on? And you share that, and we realize that hey, people that are sedated are going through this dream state where they could be in a in a like a, a really scary place. They don't know what's going on. They can't control anything. So this is where the agitation comes from. Agitation doesn't really exactly. doesn't really come from the person being being angry in, in, in a sense or wants to pull the tube. It just comes from they don't know where they are and it's super scary. And once you mess with that with that dream state, that's like that's like almost like messing with like a character in like a movie. It's it, it like changed a lot of things, change your, your, your perception. Yeah. So I'm really happy that you offer this. So because as a nurse, we really don't know what's going on through the mind. We just know that agitated, okay, we'll try again later. But now you kind of understand yeah. where this agitation comes from because you're in, literally in a dream state where you don't have control over, over anything that's going on. Yeah, and usually as nurses, yeah. we, we tell somebody, hey, everything's okay, calm down, take a deep breath. Sometimes we give uh, as-needed medications to keep inducing the coma when you're more aware in this case. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's really tough because everything is subjective. What you're experiencing, these dreams, the the purple fish and everything, it's completely valid. It was your experience that you, that you had. And on the other side of the provider, we just can't do anything about that. Our main thing is patient safety. So if you're trying to pull your tube, right. if you're shouting and going, you know, crazy in the, the reality world that we're in, all we could do is just do things for your safety. And you know, that's the unfortunate part of delirium. Sometimes it increases the hospital stay. In your case, you were induced for over 16 days. And that also, you have a hard time with, you know, potential maybe withdrawals from all these medications with physical therapy, occupational therapy, getting your mobility and muscles back and everything. Are you looking for a fitness tracker to help you reach your fitness goals? Look no further. Whoop 4.0 is the ultimate fitness tracker, helping you optimize your workouts and recover faster. With personalized insights and metrics, you can track your progress and make sure you're getting the most out of your training. Simply sign up using our link and you'll receive a free WHOOP 4.0 and a month on us. So why wait? Team up with a community of nurses and take your fitness journey to the next level. What's up listeners? 
Did you have a long shift at work or a hard workout? Feeling dehydrated? No worries. We've got you covered with Liquid IV. Liquid IV is a perfect solution for those wanting to stay hydrated without consuming all the extra sugar and artificial ingredients in sport drinks. It's a hydration multiplier that provides two to three times more hydration than water alone. And guess what? As our listener, you can use the code CONPOD, C-O-N-P-O-D, to receive 15% off your order and free shipping. Mm. And yeah. and how was your how was your hospital stay now moving forward after this induced coma when you started waking up when you were extubated? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um yeah, well, first of all, obviously there's a couple of days that it's completely like, you know, un, un, unbelievable what had happened. And and you know, you, when you start realizing what had happened and people start telling you actually that you were in a coma and um so then the whole procedure starts as you say i mean you have to learn to 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 eat again to swallow so they do the test see how how good you can swallow before they give you anything to eat then the the getting up um trying to stand trying to walk um i had a physical therapist coming to see me maybe three days and that was it so once i was able to pull on my own underwear <laughs> I was good to go um, basically and then I was um, moved over to a um, hospital room I think after four days or something and um, and then three days later I was I was sent home but I was I was given any indication of what I might expect afterwards of any follow-up of what to do of nothing so there was really no I mean I I had to kind of figure it out myself Uh, once back home I started some physical therapy because my my whole left shoulder was completely um, dislocated due to the um, probably to the posture because I, I have the scar on the right side so probably they you know they kept me more on this side um, so that took me a while to get it back into into shape. My voice, um, obviously, I couldn't eat for nearly a year other than soft food because of the missing teeth. Um, building up some strength and putting weight on, um, and things like the first four weeks, I think my pulse rate was extremely high, and any you know, little effort I was doing, I was sweating like crazy. And those things, it's like, you know, like it's scary because you have no idea what's happening. And until you realize it's something normal because of all the, your your body's not used to do any effort after a month in a a hospital bed. So um, eventually this, this goes away, but if you don't know anything and nobody tells you, then of course it's, it's very scary. Um, yeah, and then as you say, all, all the medication that you received. So I'm like very much into um, healthy eating, nutrition. So my main concern was kind of detoxing all these meds that I had received before. So I started as good as I can to do some detoxing um, here and there. And uh, but yeah, again, there was very very little information and, and indication. So, yeah. so it sounds like there was a frustration with the education that was provided through the hospital for what to do afterwards, correct? And I think Peter and I could both okay. attest that that is one of the most hardest things to do in healthcare because of how limited, you know, no one understands the back end of the hospital, but we're always trying to chart because insurances need to get billed. And the education, which in your case is probably one of the most important pieces of what to do afterwards, wasn't properly communicated because of the lack of resources for the hospital staff. And the nurse maybe was just running around being too busy because they were trying to manage you medically versus manage what's going to happen post, correct? So was that your biggest frustration when it comes to the education, what you should do after your hospital stay? The education, but also the support while you are still in the hospital. I mean, I was in the hospital for another week after I woke up. And so there was, I would have liked to have like a little bit more of um, psychological support. You know, after everything you've just gone through, to have someone at least 
see you, visit you, because I mean, the, the, the PTSD you have after that is tremendous. And I mean, I had to go through therapy after because I got to a stage that I couldn't cope with my life. I, I was like, you know, it was too overwhelming that everybody, you know, once, once you have a little bit of weight on and you start moving normally, everybody thinks you're back normal and you're not because you still have nightmares, you still have a lot of fears. Um, so also that part, nobody kind of gives you some ideas what to do. Um, I think there's a lot of things that can help from acupuncture to other um, trauma methods to, you know, to release trauma. And, and so it's, it's a complete, what comes afterwards that's missing. Um, and as you say, yeah, doctors are busy. Was busy was July 21, so in the middle of COVID, the, the hospitals were filling up. I can't understand all that, but the families are also lost, so they have no idea what to expect once you're home. And um, I, I think, and it's one of the one of the reasons I wanted to write that book because I think it's. It's, it can help a lot families as well to understand what's happening before, during, and after. Um, I wasn't given the option, or was my husband, to, you know, if you if we have to intubate you, do you are you okay to be in a coma? That was never on the table. I know that's not a common practice. Um, it always goes hand in hand, but nobody ever mentioned the possibility to us um, that that could happen. So obviously my husband, my family were as overwhelmed as, as you would be in that situation with no information um, from the doctors. And, and I'm a person I like to know and I like to ask questions and, but you get a lot, you get the, the feeling that, they prefer you not to know anything and not to ask questions. Just, just let me do my job and move on. Okay. Yeah. Medicine is very, almost seems like just, just reactive, especially the hospital. You come in, we treat you, you leave. Uh, and it's very yeah. protocol too. I, like when you refer to, to, your, to your book, you mentioned that they couldn't figure out the source of your, of your infection, but because all they were seeing was like abscess in your throat and they were draining the abscess and they couldn't figure out the location of the of the uh, of the actual infection and it shows you that it's so protocol that sometimes looking outside the box is very difficult for physicians exactly. so exactly. the infection ended up being your teeth but that was the last place they, they looked but if they were able to maybe maybe have more independence in the way they do things maybe that would have been 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 caught sooner because so a common person it might it might seem like oh well if it's an infection in your throat maybe it's come from the teeth but if you're so protocol we have to do a b c d and e you don't have time right. to think outside the box because if you don't do A, B, C, and D, well, guess what? You might get in trouble because you didn't go because you went against the protocol. Yeah. Because maybe, yeah. you know, because they have this perfect way of doing things where they have this model that's supposed to fit every patient, but it, but it really, really doesn't. So do you think at some point medicine failed? Not necessarily the physician because physicians can only do what, what they can and they're taught yeah. the way they're taught. So do you think medicine has failed you or a hospital? Or the system? I think, I think it's the bureaucracy of the hospital. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying anything negative about the doctors. They did their job, they did what they had to do. But I think it's the administration of the whole um, complex, because it's, it's, it's several, um, that as you say, they go through their ABCD, whatever protocol, and even if they lose time, you know, that's the way you have to go. And if in, in, in the, on the way there, the patient dies, well, that's what happens. So, you know, uh, that was my feeling, and I think that's what's happening. And I had I had confirmation of that. And again, again, I mean, we tried to to talk to admin staff in the hospital before I was placed in coma, but we didn't get anywhere because of yeah, of course they 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 don't change their approach because of one patient. But um, yeah, that's the way it works, unfortunately. And, and I liked to refer to Dr. House because this this component was missing. You know, someone who's like, what could it be? And, um, and it was actually my husband who who pushed them 
to start looking into the teeth. He put hard for them to do it because maybe otherwise they would have lost more days even. So. And Susan, going back to uh, to you being sedated, a lot of times people say that go through like an end of life experience. You, you, you said there was a point where you just wanted to kind of give up, but the, the thought of leaving your kids just wouldn't allow you to do that. Did you like see a light in a tunnel? Was there any kind of life or death experience that, that you kind of went through while, while being sedated? No, no, I, I didn't have that. I mean, the only, as I said before, when I was trying to pull the, the tube and then I have this um, experience that, you know, I try to, to take my breath and it's getting less and less and harder and harder until someone comes and puts the mask on my face. Again, I don't know if that was real or not. I think it was more than delirium, but that was the only experience I had that I thought I was getting close to death, but I didn't see anything. I didn't see a light. I didn't know. Um, from what they told me, I was close to death eventually at some point, but I didn't, it didn't translate into my um, experience being in the coma. So I think it's from what I heard, uh, heard and, and, you know, talking to other survivors, I think that happens more when people are in a natural coma than in an induced, then they often have these near-death experiences. But um, the nightmares are very typical for, for the induced comas. And one of the areas you mentioned that healthcare providers could be a better service to is the psychological stress, the trauma mm. that you experienced throughout the stay. So you, you told us that there was not much psychological support throughout the stay or maybe even post. So how did you decide to cope with the traumatic experiences that you were having, such as maybe physiological symptoms or maybe uh, vivid dreams? How did you go about that? I think you mentioned therapy, but how did this process look like? When were you aware that, hey, I need psychological support? This is something that's affecting right. my quality of life. So in the in the very beginning, like maybe two or three weeks later, when I was able to to write again and, and hold a, um, a laptop on my legs, I, I started to to write down like the first draft of what now became the book, which was which was helpful. It was hard for me, but it was helpful to start writing everything down. But then probably a couple of months probably like six months later, I suddenly started to realize, as I had mentioned before, that people saw you already as normal and I realized I was not. So I was afraid of catching COVID. I was afraid of um, crowds of people. I was afraid of um, going out of my house. Um, I, I, I did start driving again pretty soon, but I was, I was really afraid of a lot of things. And I was working again um, from home and half time, but, you know, I had to, I had to be there. I, I, I couldn't just go into bed and, and, and lock me up and say, okay, I'm going into depression now. So that's when, when I realized I, I had to do something and I, I didn't want to, talk to anyone about it because I was, you know, I was like, okay, my husband really had enough. He has gone through so much. I, I don't want to talk to him about what I'm experiencing now. My friends, the same thing. I think they were already like done. They didn't want to hear it again <laughs> and over and over. So that's when I decided to, to look for someone outside, someone who, who can really ask the right questions and um, let me tell my story and can offer advice, professional advice. And it was really successful, the, the therapy I did. Um, it was like a combination of speech therapy and also some tapping and relaxing. And um, it, it really helped me. I did it for a couple of months, nearly a year after, actually. And, um, and it, you know, I went through... A traumatic scene and after that I was like I think I'm, I'm good now and since then I'm 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 good I, I don't have any nightmares anymore I, I mean 
I must admit that going through the book writing and publishing and now like kind of talking about the subject again nearly on a daily basis obviously brings back everything but it's also good because I think it it, it has to be said and and I'm happy that a lot of people start start reading the book and um, and realize what's going on and especially with COVID that so many people were place in a coma um, you guys know better than me that probably you've seen many more than before and um, yeah so I, I you know personally I think the only thing I, I have left is is a little bit of ADHD <laughs> so I'm like you know constantly have to do several things at a time and I get bored very very fast but I can live with it it's okay mm. And did you have that little bit of ADHD before or was that the little bit of ADHD come after? I, it, in that way, it came after. No, before I, you know, I, was, I always liked to be someone being busy, like busy at the job and having stuff to do. But it's, I wouldn't have called it ADHD at that time. But now I, I, I mean, I call it ADHD myself. I, I've never, I haven't been diagnosed with it, but, you know, I realized that I have... I have issues concentrating sometimes on like I watch a movie and I need to do stuff on my phone or listening to a conversation. I drift away depending on what's it about. So I, I have issues to concentrate, but again, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. I have, I, I have I a theory why that kind of happens. I think that that might've happens because I've heard that from a handful of people that go through these kind of situations where they have like a life or death situation or they do get uh, put under sedation is they have a little bit of like, like you said, a little bit of ADHD and I'm thinking where it stems from. I think like subconsciously that your body almost went through a state where, where it was, where it was basically dead, that it's almost like now, since you're almost, you can say reborn, you kind of want to do as much as you can, because it's almost like your body kind of senses that you don't want to be put back in that, into that state. So it's almost trying to take advantage yeah. of like every single thing that you're doing at, at the same time. It doesn't want to like miss out on, on anything. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. And yeah. um, did you have any any kind of break, like break realizations? Has your attitude changed or maybe your mindset or maybe the things that you take for granted when you uh, came out of the, the sedation and after getting intubated? Has any of your, of your thoughts changed the way you look at life? For sure. Uh, for sure. I mean, I, you know... <laughs> Being, being German, maybe that's one of our, like we start to plan ahead and we start to be on the, on the safe side. And I mean, my, my husband is Latin, so, you know, it's, <laughs> we balance it out. But I, I think I'm much more living the day now. Like I think in the future, but I'm not like worried anymore. It's more this attitude, you know, you don't even know what's going to happen. Tomorrow it can be dead, so better enjoy life today and, and don't worry about tomorrow. So that has definitely changed um, the way I see things. I get upset much, much less than before because you know, so many things that we worry about and we get upset about, which uh, it's not necessary. Um, what else? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm still afraid of dying but I'm not as afraid of death anymore because I also already before I, I had I was a believer of there's something after after life but now I I kind of believe it more even though I didn't have a death near-death experience but I still feel that something was there to get me out of it and, you know, if you call it God or something, I don't know, but, I, you know, we all have our, our date when, when it's time to go. And in my case, it wasn't. So that, that I got that really clear when, when all this happened. Um, so, yeah, that definitely changed. I, I'm... I like to help people. I like to talk about my experience because I think it's helpful. Um, I know a lot of people that suffer. They, they lock themselves up. And it's hard to cope, especially when 
your surrounding and your family and your friends don't understand what happened and what's going on in your mind and um, that life has changed and attitude has changed. But um, luckily in my, in my case, I, you know, I don't have any, any health issues afterwards and I came out pretty good shape. So, yeah. I think that's a beautiful part in life that any single event, both good or bad, the way we view it, there can be some lessons or realizations that we can learn. So in your case, mm. you, even though this was traumatic, it was 16 days of an induced coma, you had nightmares, you still found some meaning, meaning into it to help you mm -hmm. cope with it, but also have a higher quality of life where now maybe you're not as fixed on this mentality of I'm going to die, I need to do a lot of things right away, or it increased your faith and spirituality with the higher power who you choose to, you know, mm -hmm. to associate that to be yeah. the higher power. And yeah. with all these experiences, when did you have this light bulb moment that clicked that I feel inspired to write this book? Where did your passion come from? Um, well, again, in the beginning, I wrote down because, I mean, it was funny when I came out of the, of the coma, I was so overwhelmed what I had lived during the coma because it was really like a story from the beginning to the end. Like some people have like, like flashes and certain experiences, but it's not related. And in my case, it was like really a whole, so I woke up and was like, oh my God, and, you know. I, I can make a movie of this really because it's so weird. It's so out of everything. And, and then I started writing everything down not to forget about it. Um, and, but then I, I left it there for, um, for a few months and didn't write anymore and didn't continue until probably sometime last year, um, summer last year when I, when I thought that I really need to do a book because I really, in the first line, first idea was definitely because I wanted for my kids so they can one day read about it and understand what happened because they had no idea. They didn't see me for a month, but they had no idea what was going on. Um, obviously because of their age as well. And so I, I did it primarily for them. And then, as I said, um, also to help people and to, to make the medical staff better understand what's going on. Um, so that was my motivation to do it. And I'm glad I did it. I'm really glad. Um, yeah, that somehow <laughs> it worked out. I don't think I'm going to write another book, probably. <laughs> I don't consider myself a writer, but I'm glad I did it. Uh, Susan, can yeah. you share a little bit about your life outside of being a patient? Because as nurses, when we just see our patient, we just see them just as patients. It's, I'll, I'll be honest with you, not a lot of times we pay attention to or even learn about what our patients are outside of, of, of the hospital, outside of being a patient. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a little bit of insight on how about your life and how your life was before the the induced coma? I know you. I, I know as a kid you mentioned that you had anorexia. You had a little bit of a struggle with, with that. So can you give us a little mm -hmm. bit of um, insight on how your life was prior to being a patient or outside of being a patient? Um. Well, not, not you know from the outside perspective, not too much has changed. So I I have been working in in tourism. Um, I before I. All this happened. I was working for a, a hotel company. I had my kids, so you know my my daily routine. COVID um, came, and we all worked from home. And um, my my parents died a long time ago. I was still in in Germany when they died, so I I still have family in Germany, but I no not. I mean, my sister is still there, who I'm very close with. Um, but yeah, as I, as I said in the beginning, Miami has really become my, my, my home and I can imagine staying here. And, um, when, after all that happened, um, 
I mean, I think the biggest change was probably that before I was still like very much focused on my career and, and doing career and, and being success, successful. And, and after that, my, my um, focus went more on doing something that I enjoy, that I'm, you know, something that I still in my in my area i'm still working in tourism but i so i changed jobs last year because i just needed i needed something new and also i needed a new environment because working in the company i used to work before everything happened did remind me um in some ways of of everything um that happened two years ago and, and the atmosphere was not anymore the one I wanted. So I changed job and I, I just try to do a good job, but it's not like I want to continue doing career or um, making more money or it's, it's, it's really about enjoying my day to day, enjoying my kids. That's, my priority really um, because the thought of them not having me around anymore was the worst during the coma and um, and so I'm really trying to to enjoy it to the fullest as I, much as I can um, yeah other than that I, I can't really say that I changed that much before and after other than what I mentioned before that I that I really um, take it more like day by day yeah. so um, Su Suzanne when you're doing all this traveling because you originally ran a, ran away from living in, in Germany to travel to uh, take on these different roles at uh, work yeah. in different hospitals what did what did travel bring to you what, what did it give you why did you enjoy traveling has it taught you anything or what was that that pull that always mm. brought you to travel because you went to I think it was Cuba then you, then you went to a London you traveled uh, quite a bit of the world what was pulling you pulling you to traveling and what did you learn through it well it was it was of my because of my job so it was kind of <laughs> excuse me so I never thought actually of leaving Germany it was by chance that I ended up um, <clears throat> going to Spain so I lived in Spain I was offered a job then I went to Cuba, then I offered another job, I went to, to England. And it definitely made my, like, my perspective and my horizon wider to, I, I lived in Egypt, I lived in, yeah, Mexico. And I always try to live with the, with the people, with the culture, understand other cultures and, and adapt myself and not like, locking myself up and, and continue um, living the way I live. So I think traveling for, for all of us can, you know, it, it's not only going on vacation and, and relaxing, not working for a week or two. I think we should all always try to, to learn something and to be open-minded about other cultures and other, other habits and in my case, because I lived in other countries, um, which makes it's obviously makes it much easier to to get into into the culture. But it was um, it was a great experience. I, I would do it again for sure. Like now, with my family, and and as I said before, right now I consider Miami my home. But that doesn't mean that maybe in five years we decide to pack up again and move somewhere else. So that, that option always exists because there are so many nice places in this world. And luckily we can do that, no? We can move around and you became travel nurses, so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. And, so, that's, and that's a beautiful so part travel of- Travel for me has always been, go ahead. I was just gonna say, that's a beautiful part of traveling, you get to see other places, but also you get to learn about yourself. So, you know, you don't go to Paris and find yourself, but through these experiences, through the unknown uncertainty, you learn about your character, who you are, your values, and you're able to create this character so you could better That's right. carry on through life. And one last question yeah. we'd like to ask all of our guests before we end the show. So if you had the opportunity to have a cup of coffee one last time with anybody dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, it would 
it would for sure be my my mom. Um, both of them, both of my parents, but with my mother, I, I think, you know, there's so many questions. Um, I'm 51 now, so I'm going through this period which is not easy for women. And, you know, I, so many questions I would like to ask her and, and, and um, obviously her getting to know my, my grandchildren, uh, my, my children, her grandchildren. <laughs> and um, we weren't too close when I, was, when I was young or when she was alive. I mean, we, yes, we were close, but not like the typical, um, not like me with my kids. So I'm like probably overprotective and she wasn't like that and I understand now why because she you know she also wanted to live her life and my sister and myself I, I were already grown up or, or older so she had all the right to do that and um, and I think that's something which I learned and I kind of now forgive her for that that she really went on with her life and, and enjoyed and traveled and did everything she wanted to do. Um, and not so much looking after her kids who were already grown ups. Um, but it would, it would be great to have a conversation with her. Definitely. Yeah. That's very interesting because, because growing up, we almost see in a way of where our parents kind of failed us. Not that they do it on purpose. They just, they just don't know that that that's happening. And it's like almost like your responsibility when you have kids is to is to fill those holes where your parents had had holes in their parenting. And it's like almost like your job to fill those holes. That way, yeah. your children could experience almost a better childhood and family life than what you've experienced with, with your parents. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. At least in my case, I, I like to. Um, to give all this love and, and dedication to my kids, which don't get me wrong. It's not that I didn't get it from my parents parents but it was it was a different it was different times as well I think like everything was so independent and um, you know let your kids run I mean it was 70s 80s so it was different times probably and Susan where can people find a link or where can people find the book if they're interested in purchasing it um so the book is uh, mainly on Amazon, Kindle available as well, but you can also find it on Walmart, Target, Barnes and Nobles, most of the online providers offer it. Okay. okay. That's amazing. And we'll add the link to the show notes for anybody that's curious. So Great. again, yeah, thank you for coming on the show and talking about your experience about delirium, what it was in being a patient in the hospital. We don't talk to many patients outside of the hospital because we just take care of their most critical moments. So we have a lot of listeners that are nurses, so thank you for sharing that experience. And it's a great reflection to what we can improve, just like you mes me mentioned, the psychological support and the other things that maybe we as healthcare providers fail at times. So thank you for coming here and sharing your experience. Right. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And, and I think it's also important that um, we as patients recognize you guys and all the work you do because uh, there were so many people looking after me which I never met in person and that's also why I wanted to dedicate the book to to them because I know it's it's an incredible job that you do and um, obviously thanks to to the entire staff I'm still here because in the end they did their job and they did what they had to do so Thank you for sharing that with you.